Good morning. How is everyone doing this morning? Good? Awesome. Happy New Year's Eve. We've made it through 2017, almost. We have one more day. Um, But I'm so excited to be here with you guys this morning, and I want to start out um, by asking you to think about a statement for a minute. And the statement is this, life is full of tension to manage. Life is full of tension to manage. As a parent, I constantly feel the tension of life. I have, my wife and I have a two-year-old a little girl named Emery, and Emery is a crazy, amazing, awesome kid. She's one of my favorite people on the planet. Uh, but Emery is really, like, naughty and strong-willed sometimes, too. And she just recently learned this new thing where uh, she thinks it's really fun in the middle of our house to rip off her shirt, pull down her pants, pull off her shoes and her socks, and run everywhere yelling, Nakey! Nakey! She loves to be naked, which isn't that big of a deal because I do the same thing at home, but it becomes really problematic when she does it at other people's houses or in the grocery store. She's even done it here at church. Yes, my toddler is the one streaking in the nursery over there. So if you think your kid is bad, it's okay. We're all in this together. Um, but life parenting is full of tension. I, in those moments, I don't know what the best parenting reaction is to that. On one hand, I'm mortified and embarrassed and like thinking to myself, she's got to learn that eventually this won't be socially acceptable for her to do. And on the other hand, I think it's one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life and I want her to do it as much as she possibly can. And I'm caught between this tension of what is the best thing to do for my daughter in this moment? Now, even if you're not a parent, if you're like a student, you live in tension all the time, too. You live in the tension of trying to balance doing the best you can in school. If you're on a sports team while doing the best you can in sports, while managing your family and your friends and possibly a girlfriend or boyfriend in church, and all of those things are pulling at your time and your attention. If you're a working adult, you know the tension between work and life. For some of us, we go to jobs that are simply just a means for an end so that we can live the life that we want. And what most experts will say and what you'll hear again and again is that healthy and happy people are the ones that are able to find balance between the tensions of life, to have good priorities between the tensions of life and manage all of those things well. Now, there are tensions in life, but there are also inherent tensions in following Jesus. Maybe for you, you recently became a Christian, and it meant having rejection from family and friends and neighbors and having to live with that tension of people I love and the way that I'm called to live. Maybe for you, you became a Christian, and that meant having old habits and old behaviors dying and and feeling this tension of something you knew that you enjoyed doing, but you also knew wasn't beneficial for you to do as a follower of Jesus. For me, I live in tension of my faith all the time. And for me, the biggest tension that I see is between these two words right here, grace and truth. You see, on one hand, grace says you're forgiven, but truth says you're accountable. Grace says, you're okay, you're all right, it's paid for. Truth says, you've got some work to do. You don't quite measure up. 
As a pastor to students, I live in this tension all the time. Like on one hand, I want to welcome any student from any background and any uh, situation into our youth group, and I'm thrilled that they are here. And on the other hand, guys, you got to leave your pot brownies at home. You can't bring your pot to youth group. And it's this tension, right? And I think all of us live in a little bit of this tension between grace and between truth. Maybe you were raised in a home that was really good at truth. And the phrase, the truth hurts, was felt a lot for you as a child. You were brought up and you had no question as to what the righteousness and moral standards of God were, but it was a home that was lacking in grace. Maybe you experienced the opposite side and you grew up in a home that was really good with grace. Anything went, but you were raised with very few boundaries and it's caused some problems with self-discipline and things like that as you've grown up. And so we live in this tension between grace and truth and understanding this tension has a lot of implications for those of us that are followers of Jesus in how we engage cultural issues like poverty, like racism, like sexuality, like all of these things that we deal with as followers of Jesus and live into in our culture in 2017 and 2018. Our balance between grace and truth, and as a follower of Jesus, it's, it's so important for us to understand what that looks like lived out. And so I would argue that there's no better person to look at to figure out how this is lived out than Jesus Himself, And so if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to be in a, a familiar text for you if you grew up in church. Um, it's Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. And as you're turning there, just to give you some context here, this is a time in Luke where Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem for the last time, and he's heading in uh, to be arrested and tried and crucified. And his interaction with Zacchaeus is one of his final interactions before he enters in to Jerusalem. So Luke chapter 9, join with me, verse 1. He entered, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. Now Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector and was rich. Let's pause there for a second because we read those two verses and they may not mean a lot to us. But for an ancient Jewish audience to hear these words, he was a chief tax collector and he was rich, well, those would have been really loaded statements. Imagine for me, if you will, that our country, the United States, is, is overtaken by an oppressive power like Russia or North Korea. And that, that oppressive power comes in and they bring soldiers into our country. And they begin to change our laws, and they begin to take away freedoms, and they begin to tax us and charge us money as citizens of the United States. And I don't think any of us would like that very much. But then to make matters worse, imagine a family member or a friend or a neighbor decides in their own self-preservation that they were going to go bribe the Russian government and collect taxes on their behalf. And so what do they do? They come and they knock on your door, and they say, you owe $200 to the government, pay up right now. So you're like, okay, this was, this was my family's food money for the week, but here's, here's the $200. And then that person goes, they take the $200 to the Russian government, and they say, here's the $150 I owed you. And that extra $50 of the $200, they pocket for themselves. And they do this again and again and again, and they get incredibly rich 
incredibly wealthy over oppressing other people and collecting taxes on the government's behalf. Now, when, when the Bible talks about sinners and tax collectors, they often group those two people together. And, and sinners are even like, we're sinners, but we're not tax collectors. Like, don't, don't put us in the same category. I mean, these people, these tax collectors, were the lowest of the low in their society in terms of how they were viewed. They were outcasts, and they were hated. They were absolutely despised. And so that, that is the man we're introduced to, Zacchaeus. Verse 3. And Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. But on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see Jesus, for he was about to pass that way. Now, if you grew up in church, you're, there's a little song running through your head right now, isn't there? Zacchaeus was a wee little man, a wee little man was he. He climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. There was something about Jesus that drew Zacchaeus in. And Zacchaeus does two verbs here. He runs and he climbs. Two of these verbs are very undignified for a Jewish man like Zacchaeus to do. Running meant risking exposing yourself to the people around you. It, may, it meant making yourself vulnerable of exposure uh, to the community to which you were a part of. And climbing, well, climbing was something a slave did. This was not a dignified act for somebody like Zacchaeus to do. But there was something about Jesus that was captivating for Zacchaeus. Had he heard of this man who could forgive sins? Had he heard of this man who could make the blind see? Who could heal people of their disabilities and ailments? Had he heard of one of Jesus' followers himself, Matthew, who was a former tax collector. Something about Jesus drew Zacchaeus in. Going back to the text here, verse 5 says, And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he looks at Zacchaeus. And Jesus calls him by name, and he says, in an act of community and relationship and intimacy, Zacchaeus, I want to come to your house today. Now put yourself in Zacchaeus' shoes for a minute here. I, I don't know about you, but I'd be asking questions like, does Jesus know who I am? Does he know what I've done or what I'm guilty of? Does he know how I've hurt people? Does he know the kind of sinner that I am? Surely if he knows my name, he must also know my reputation. Yet Jesus says, no, Zacchaeus, it is your house that I want to come to today. It is community and intimacy and relationship. I want to be your guest today. And, and, and what happens next is you can almost see an immediate heart flip in Zacchaeus. Evangelist D.L. Moody said, the distance between the limb and the ground is where Zacchaeus was converted. It was fast. It says here in verse 6, so Zacchaeus hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And then the crowd has a reaction. 
says, when the crowd saw it, they all grumbled. said, he has gone to be the guest of a man who is the sinner. The crowd's reaction makes a lot of sense to me. I'd be asking Jesus some questions in this moment. Like, Jesus, do you know who this man is? Do you know what he's done to hurt me? Do you know what he's done to hurt my family? Like, I can barely put bread on the table because of this man's actions. And you want to go to his house? And then what I would do is I would immediately start comparing my own unrighteousness to Zacchaeus's. Well, I'm righteous and Zacchaeus is pathetic. I, I go to church every single week. I give money that I have to other people. I follow the law. I don't just go to church. I serve in my church. I don't just serve in my church. I chase streaking toddlers around the nursery at my church. That's how righteous I am. What I'm reminded of in that moment when, when, when I compare my righteousness to somebody else's is that Jesus, he didn't come for the righteous. Jesus came for the sinner. And he didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. And Jesus had a habit, a knack of finding the most unhealthy, most unrighteous, worst sinner in the whole community. And says, that, that is who I came for. That is who I came to experience community with. Concluding the story in verse 8, it says, And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today, today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is a beautiful story of Jesus living out both grace and truth. And I don't know about you, but when I think about my faith walk and and what it looks like to live out the way of Jesus in the world, I often think about grace and truth as if they were a scale to be balanced. If you want to, yeah, put that up there. On one hand is grace. And it's the unmerited, unearned favor of God. It's the unconditional love and mercy that we did nothing to deserve and nothing to earn. And on the other hand of that scale is truth. It's God's moral standards of righteousness, his holiness. And and what I find myself doing is I find myself looking at where where do I balance out in the scale? Where do I fit in the scale? And for some of us, we're really good at living out all grace in our lives with no truth. And what ends up happening when we do that is we affirm and we condone the sin for which Jesus came to die. Notice Jesus did not come up to Zacchaeus in the tree and say, Zach, buddy, you're doing a really good job tax collecting. If you were to just charge the Jones and the Smith family 5% more, you'll get that Porsche you've been eyeing. No, he doesn't, he doesn't come and affirm Zacchaeus in his sin. But then on the other hand, end of the scale, he doesn't come to condemn Zacchaeus either. He doesn't live out truth with no grace. 
He doesn't come up to the tree and say, Zacchaeus, you are the scum of the earth. I hate your stinking guts. He doesn't say that either. Because Jesus Jesus wasn't interested in affirming sin, and he wasn't interested in condemning people for sin. What Jesus was interested in is seeing transformation and new life come from his grace and his truth. You can say it this way. Grace by itself is enabling. And it's not actually grace at all. Grace by itself is enabling. And truth by itself is condemning. But together, grace and truth bring transformation and freedom. John was another gospel writer that that gave an account of Jesus' life. And, And John wrote his gospel a little bit later than the rest of the gospels were written. It was written several decades after Jesus had come and lived and died. And John opens his gospel a little bit differently than, than the other gospel writers do. He says this, he, he uses a metaphor for Jesus, the word, and he says, in the beginning was the word, in the beginning was Jesus. And he was with God and he was God, and it was through Jesus and for Jesus and by Jesus that everything was made that has been made. But then John continues his account of Jesus. And in verse 14, he says this, and the word in Jesus became flesh and dwelt among us. John is saying he literally put on flesh and bones and camped out with us. He tabernacled with us is is another way to say this. He was one of us. Then he goes on to say, and we have seen his glory. He's talking about the contemporaries of Jesus, those people that lived with Jesus, we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John spent years with Jesus. He watched Jesus in all sorts of situations, interacting with all sorts of people. And before he tells us anything about the actual life and ministry of Jesus, he says, the best way I can say it is that Jesus was overflowing with both grace and both truth. It wasn't a scale for Jesus. It wasn't a tension to manage as if grace and truth are enemies of each other. He brought the full measure of both of them in his life. John goes on to say that out of this fullness, we have experienced and received grace upon grace, like overflowing, abundant grace. And then in verse 17, John says, For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus himself. Jesus didn't come to balance the two. He came to embody the two, and he brought it, the fullness of it, to every person, to the adulterer, to the prostitute. He brought grace and truth to the sexually broken, to the tax collector, to the oppressed and the oppressor. He brought it to the lustful and the greedy and every single person. He brought the full measure of grace and truth to. Jesus brought it to Zacchaeus. and He brings it to you and me as well. You see, Jesus embodied this in the way that he saw people. He saw sinners And then he showed compassion on them. And then he called their sin, sin. He wasn't afraid to call it what it was, but then he paid for it with his life. 
This, this is how Jesus lived out grace and truth. And if, if we are the church, if we are the body of Christ, if we are his hands and his feet and the best representation of Jesus that the world will ever know, well, then it stands to reason that we need to embody grace and truth in the same way that Jesus did and does. And so how do we do this? How do we live out grace and truth in a Jesus-replicating, Jesus-honoring sort of way? Well, I would say it begins with this. It begins with living in self-awareness of Jesus' grace. Live in a constant self-awareness of the grace that Jesus has shown you in your own life. Just a couple verses before Jesus interacts with Zacchaeus in Luke 18, he tells a parable. Two men are standing in the temple, and, and on one hand, there's a Pharisee, a religious leader. And Jesus says, the Pharisee looks around at all the people around him, and he says, God, I thank you that I am not like this adulterer or this prostitute or this person or this person. And he literally lists all their sins, and God, he says, God, I thank you that I am guilty of none of those sins. The attitude of the Pharisee was horizontal. It was self-righteous. It was only seeing the sins of the people around him. Then Jesus contrasts the Pharisee with the tax collector over here. And Jesus describes his posture that he could not even look up to heaven. That he beat his chest and his words were simple. He said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, it's really hard to find ourselves in a crowd that is grumbling about the scandalous grace of Jesus when we understand how much that same scandalous grace has been given and offered to us. So number one, live in self-awareness of Jesus' grace. Live in constant self-awareness. Remind yourself constantly. Humble yourself constantly before God and thanking him for the grace that he has shown you. And then... After that, be extravagantly motivated by the extravagant grace of Jesus. Let that grace, let that awareness motivate you to show that same grace, that same truth to other people that you interact with. As Zacchaeus goes through his heart transformation in this story, in verse 8, he says, And Zacchaeus said, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus is having an extravagant reaction to the extravagant grace of Jesus. The law would have required Zacchaeus to make restitution, to pay back what he owed plus one-fifth or 20%. Zacchaeus says, I want to restore it 400%. Zacchaeus has an extravagant reaction to the grace of Jesus. But hear this, this is important. Zacchaeus didn't do that to get the grace of Jesus. He did that because he had just gotten the grace of Jesus. It was Jesus' grace that came first and offered life-transforming hope and truth for Zacchaeus. So number two, be extravagantly motivated by the extravagant grace of Jesus. And then number three, Embrace the tension. We live in the tension of grace and truth. 
We live in this tension of how do I interact and engage with people that sin differently than I do. And I would say run towards that tension. Just like Jesus, let that tension lead you to all kinds of difficult and hard situations and places and people. Let that tension of living out grace and truth like Jesus did impact how you interact with people in your workplace, in your family, on social media. Let that impact everything for you and recognize that that tension is only resolved through more of Jesus in your own life through more of living like Jesus and desiring to be like Jesus in your own life. When we are transformed by Jesus, like truly transformed, there is evidence. We start acting like Jesus. We start bringing Jesus to every interaction that we have, every place that we go, and we follow his example, and we follow his lead in the way we live. I grew up in a, in a home um, it was a Christian home, and I would say we, as a, as a family, were really good on truth. I mean, I knew God's word. I knew his standards. Um, I felt the hammer of God's truth all the time in my life. I would dare say our family was a little bit legalistic. But then something happened in the life of my family, something that has drastically transformed who we are. I was in sixth grade, and my dad was playing in a a church league basketball game. He was about to go in the game. I was there with my brothers, and my mom was at work. And all of a sudden, my dad collapses on the ground. And I saw swarms of people running in towards him. And I didn't know if my dad had died in that moment. I didn't know what was happening in that moment. And, and he, he kind of tried to shake it off as if it was dehydration or the flu or something like that. But, but he was made to go in the hospital. Like, like family members that were there were not going to take no for an answer. And so he went to the hospital. And what we found out in the hospital after a couple tests was that my dad had a brain aneurysm. And that he was just weeks, if not days, away from dying instantly from that brain aneurysm. And the chances of him surviving that aneurysm were about 25%. And the chances were even less of him surviving without any kind of permanent disability or ailment. And by the grace of God, he brought my dad through and our family through that situation without any permanent disability or ailment whatsoever. But here's the thing, that is a miracle and we are thankful for that. But for me and my family, the miracle was how God transformed my family. You see, my dad understood every single breath that he took after that was the grace of God at work in his life. It changed how my parents parented me and my brothers and sister. It changed how they lived out their calling. It changed what kind of neighbors they were to our neighborhood and our street. It changed everything for my family. And today, my parents are my heroes. They are the first people I go to for help or advice. They are the quickest people to show grace for me and my mistakes without compromising truth. And my hope for my own life and for, for us as a church is that we can be people in every interaction that we have 
that embody grace that doesn't compromise truth and embody truth that doesn't compromise grace. Uh, There's a quote that I want to put here on the screen as we conclude today. If you don't get anything else out of this, understand this, that as the church, we are most like Jesus. When we embody grace and truth, refusing to let go of either. And so may we understand going into this new year, that it is nothing we've done on our own. That everything we are and everything we have is the grace of God at work in our own lives. And may we understand that as a result of that grace, we can live in the freedom and the truth of God's righteousness. We're going to continue worshiping uh, this morning, and I would love if, if we could just pray together. God, you are so good. You are so holy. God, we stand before you this morning saying be merciful to us, sinners. God, we thank you that your grace meets us where we are at in all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our brokenness, but it doesn't call us to stay there. It calls us out of it calls us into new life, into new hope, into redemption, God. And thank you so much for that gift. God, we love you. We praise you. We worship you and we honor you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.